when you're that stressed about the food, like, of course, your digestion is not going to be great. So if we can calm and create an environment around food and do everything that we can to make food fun again, I think that that's a really great place to start on improving your relationship with food and adding more variety into your diet. You're listening to the Well Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Lee, women's menstrual cycle educator, natural fertility coach, and daytime mermaid. This is a place where we discuss all things periods, poo, ovulation, fertility, and sex. Join me weekly as we rediscover our menstrual cycles, unlock its superpowers, and guide you back into your cyclical nature. This is episode 228 of the Well Woman podcast. We are talking in this episode today all about period recovery with food, tapping into those health habits that may be contributing to imbalancing your menstrual cycle and what those imbalances might be for you. We are joined by Lindsay Lusson today, and Lindsay is a registered dietitian, a mama, a Christian wife, and a food freedom enthusiast. Now, for Lindsay, she hasn't always had such a free and positive food relationship, and and in this episode, she's explaining why that was her experience with amenorrhea, moving from not having a menstruation or a cycle into her fertility journey and her relationship with both food and exercise and how that played a really, really key role in her positive fertility experiences. We are chatting with her around restrictive eating, foods that you can recommend for having a regular menstrual cycle, lower level menstrual disturbances, those early, early signs of menstrual imbalances before we actually catch them. We have a great conversation about progesterone, the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, and also the biggest food recommendations that she has for food and period recovery. I hope you enjoy this show as much as we had fun chatting about this. Make sure you go and check out Lindsay whilst you're listening to this show. You can find her on Instagram at food.freedom.fertility. Lindsay, welcome to the Well Woman podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your gracious patience with getting us rescheduled and meeting me in my time zone because I'm on the other side of the world and it's very early for you right now. So I appreciate you being so accommodating. You are so worth it. I love this because we do interview, I interview a lot of um, people from North America. And um, for those who are watching the video version of this, I'm sitting here post being at the markets at 7.30 in the morning and I'm freezing my butt off. So I look like a polar bear all rugged up. Um, whereas it's peak peak summer for you. So very polar opposites, isn't it? It is. Um, sweating. It's been, we've been like 104 Fahrenheit, 106, 107 Fahrenheit this past week. So yes, it is about as hot as it gets here. We're kind of wishing we had the alternate, like the alternate. Yeah. I want summer, you want winter. I I would trade with you in a heartbeat for sure. I love that. So let's get stuck into it. Before we do though, tell us what day of your cycle are you on and how are you checking in today on this hot 104 day? Well, I'm so excited that I get to answer this question because I um, have three kids. And for those who don't know, when you are breastfeeding your children, if you choose to breastfeed, it's very normal to not have a cycle. Um, And so I weaned my youngest daughter um, about a month ago, and I am now on my first postpartum period. So I am cycle day five, actually feeling really great. So I like like the very beginning of my cycle to feel like I can push myself a little bit more in the gym because knowing like there's other days in my cycle that it doesn't feel so good. So, um, yeah, I feel great today. And again, like 
so excited, especially, and we'll get into this in a little bit too, like considering my history of not having a period for so long, like I just truly see it as like a gift and like a, like a super like fun little club that us women get to be part of. Like, yes, I'm back in the menstrual club. I'd love to ask you how long has it been since your last period? So obviously that would be your period before you conceived. How long has that time frame been for you? So we, so I had a period in February of 2022. Okay. Got a positive pregnancy test in March of 2022. And so this is the first cycle now. I mean, it's over a year and I'll also, you know, be clear that with my other two kids, I breastfed a lot longer, you know, with the third one, it's just been hard juggling all the things. So we only made it to about seven months postpartum. Um, but with my daughter, we breastfed for almost 15 months. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy to, and you think about like three kids, like with a history of amenorrhea plus pregnancy and breastfeeding mixed in, it's like, I could almost count on both hands the number of periods that I've had in the past five years. So it's a little bit wild. It is crazy. Just goes to show how fascinating the female body is. Like it really is cyclical and it goes through these ebbs and flows. And for those who are planning on expanding their family, like I know women who have conceived before they've even had a period. And so they've conceived on their first ovulation, post weaning or post ceasing um, breastfeeding, and then they never get a period. They're like, oh, I was kind of hoping for maybe one or two, but we just jump straight in. And so then that leads you to the next, you know, cycle of pregnancy and then the next cycle of breastfeeding. And yeah, for some, it can be years if you time it really well. Mm-hmm. So I'm celebrating for you. Cycle day five. Enjoy. <laughs> now we are talking today in this episode a lot about, you could, you could summarize it as like the relationship with health and the habits around health and the relationship with food and restrictive eating and how you eat emotionally all the time. And whether that's a high emotion or a low emotion, how did you get into this world of being a registered dietitian and really being this superfood enthusiast that loves all that stuff? Well, I'll, I'll start with the fact that I didn't always have like a very great relationship with food. I became a registered dietitian because I became really passionate, borderline obsessed with nutrition um, in college. And I just like loved and still do love like the science behind nutrition and metabolism and how our body metabolizes foods and how certain nutrients can be used to improve our health. Um, so that part of it has always been a passion of mine. It still is a passion of mine. Um, but for me, I ended up developing an eating disorder in college and grad school. And it was something I even like had to get support with and overcoming. And it was always something that I more than likely kind of like flew under the radar for maybe how unhealthy my relationship with food and exercise was, um, because I didn't necessarily look like I had an eating disorder. Mm. And so a lot of a lot of things didn't really come to the surface on what needed to change until I was trying to get pregnant. Um, and I didn't have a period and I hadn't had a period for almost a decade, but I was wow. control. Yeah. Yeah. So really long history of amenorrhea and, um, you know, in America at the time in the like early two thousands, it was just like, 
everyone takes birth control. And so, you know, like I said, I like being part of the period club. It was like, I was part of the birth control club. Like I thought it was like this cool thing that everyone was doing to like manage their periods. When in reality, I was taking it to get a, um, and if you're not watching the video, I'm doing air quotes right here, um, <laughs> to get a period because I, I wasn't cycling on my own. And so obviously that has lots of health repercussions, but fertility repercussions. And so they're kind of my own healing journey on being able to get my period back. I was of course forced to address my relationship with food and exercise. So, um, in that I just found like so much joy and learned a lot and got pieces of my life back that I didn't even realize I was missing. Um, and so when it was interesting, as I was going on my own healing journey and working as a registered dietitian, I almost like ended up at this point in my career where I were like the things that I was telling people to do, I no longer believe to be true. <laughs> so that's wow. where I started, you know, kind of thinking about, well, I have this credential, I have this knowledge, what do I want to do with it? And then I thought about something that was deeply personal to me and just started talking more about it. And from there, it just kind of grew and like taking on clients one-on-one. And now I run three different group programs. So that's it in a nutshell, kind of a long-winded answer, but hopefully I hit on the high points. You did hit all the high points. And I love that you mentioned about the birth control club because I was once in that club, you know, we were like, yeah, definitely in that club together. And I think it's so interesting that how, you know, if you look at the history of the menstrual cycle and then the history of birth control or even hormonal contraception or contraception in general, it's been around for centuries, yeah, I know the hormonal birth control pill has only been around since like the early 1960s. But when we think about that is we've kind of entered this era, we did enter this era where like that was the thing to do. And now people are actually starting to become more aware that there's actually other ramifications to being on hormonal birth control long-term. And I'm just going to go on a mini rant here. I think it's hilarious that they're still trialing the male contraception, but they haven't brought it to market yet because there's too many side effects. When I'm like, there's not even as many side effects as what there is for women, but they're still allowing the female hormonal birth control pill to be on the market. So like, it's another topic we don't have to rant about, but yes to the birth control club. And what was the thing that made you decide to come off hormonal birth control? Like what was that transition period for you? Did you then lose your period? That's something that happened to me personally. Um, So how did you find out, you mentioned about amenorrhea for those who are listening. I think they'd like to learn about that. How did you discover that you had amenorrhea and then let's dive into how food and all that kind of came into that? Yeah. So towards the end of, um, I was like 17, 18 and I grew up playing sports, um, but lost interest eventually because my friends weren't playing them or I wasn't that good. Um, and, and with that, I feel like I kind of had a couple of years where I was not active. And so as I was finding my own, I started getting into fitness and I started dieting and I lost weight and I got a lot of compliments and I started to like it. And before I knew it, I wasn't getting a period anymore. And so I was like, well, that's weird. Like, and you know, at the time, like I was like, well, people don't get their periods, but those are people who are like hospitalized for anorexia, or those are people that are literally training for the Olympics. So like in my head, it just like, didn't make sense 
that this healthy lifestyle that I thought I was creating was the cause of me not getting my period. And that was validated by a couple of doctors that I saw. And so I was basically placed on the pill. The pill was like basically given to me as a solution for not getting my period on my own. But it's interesting because I always like had this feeling in the back of my mind that like, this isn't right. Like this isn't natural. Like why do I not get my period on my own? And so that kind of just led me on a search for the next like seven years trying to figure out why I wasn't getting a period. So there was, you know, like if there wasn't really, I don't want to say there wasn't Google, but like if you Googled, you know, why is my period missing back in 2005, like you were not going to get an answer. Like there wasn't the information (laughs) about it. Yeah. Like there is now. So again, that kind of just led me on this like journey of like thinking I was doing everything right until I learned that I wasn't. Um, And back to your original question, like transitioning off birth control, there were a lot of times where I just didn't take it because I hated the way it made me feel. Um, Mm. I remember in particular being in college, taking too many courses or at university, I think you guys sometimes call it, um, taking too many courses, feeling incredibly stressed out and like, like having panic attacks. And I like called my mom and I was like, I don't know what's going on with me, but the only thing that I can think of that's really changed is the fact that I started a new birth control pill. And so I transitioned off of that. I also took some things off my plate that I was doing, um, from school, but, um, I, I never liked the way I felt on birth control. So I would kind of go through cycles of taking it and not taking it. Um, always kind of being aware in the back of my mind that without it, I didn't get a period withdrawal Mm. bleed. Um, and that that probably wasn't a good thing. Yeah. My experience is it, I just felt really numb, but I didn't realize that I was numb until I came off the pill. And I was like, Mm -hmm. it felt like I always picture it like the matrix, you know, the early, not the recent Matrix movies, the early Matrix movies where they have the little worm thing that goes in through the belly button and you're like, there's something fucking inside me and I just need to get it out. I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> on my language, but like, that's how it felt. And yeah, I can definitely um, resonate with all the things that you're sharing about your experience on the hormonal birth control pill. So thank you for sharing. And you also brought up a little bit about before getting on hormonal birth control, how you were, you know, going through those changes in your health and people were complimenting you because you looked great based on what they perceive is what you need to look like. Let's talk about the relationship with food and exercise. And I know before we hit record, we were talking about, you know, lower level menstrual disturbances, but if you were to go back to that time in your life, what are some things that you would really see as red flags to listen out for that you would recommend to people that you work with now? I think that the way that I approached exercise and food was just very strict and regimented. And these are things that I even see in like women at the gym that I go to today. And, Mm. you know, you kind of want to like shake people, but people have to kind of come to these realizations on their own. But if somebody's listening, I think this could be a really good time to like assess your relationship with this could be the realization point point. Yeah. So like what I always tell people to kind of ask themselves is like, do you take rest days? Like, you know, we talked to, you know, to, to talk about athletes training at the elite level, like 
they have an off season. They are not training at, you know, 90% of their heart rate maximum every single workout, like you might be doing, like I was doing during that time. Um, and so do you take rest days? And if no, why, like, what are you afraid of? Um, and do you feel guilty if you don't get to work out? Are you constantly counting the minutes, the steps, the calories burned, the, uh, points on the leaderboard? Like, are you like addicted to those metrics and why? Um, and, you know, thinking about why you exercise, are you exercising because it feels good? You're improving your health and you want to manage your stress, or are you exercising because you have to in an effort to give yourself permission to eat, or you have to, because you're afraid of how your body would change if you don't. So kind of the motivation behind why you move, I think can be a big red flag. And that's not something somebody can totally pick up on. That's really something more you kind of have to assess and answer for yourself. Um, and then the same goes with food, right? Like, of course, it's great to eat whole foods, fresh foods, you know, and, you know, I think it goes without saying, right? Like nobody's ever here saying like you should eat processed foods all day, every day. I think if anyone ever did that, like they wouldn't feel great, right? So like, obviously that's not what I want the take-home message to be. However, I think that in our generation, in this generation that can be health, more health-minded than the previous generation, I think that we also have this other side of the coin that we really need to be aware of on being obsessive, always reading ingredients lists, feeling terrified to eat something that someone else cooks, not being able to go out with your friends because you're afraid of how the food was prepared or how many calories are in it. So those are kind of some big flag, red flags that I see when I come to, when I like get clients or when I think back to myself, um, things that should have been very concerning when I'm choosing to stay at home and eat by myself instead of engage socially, because I was so obsessed with the amount of calories that I would be consuming if I were to go out and eat with friends. I'm like waving my white flag, like I've been here too. I know how this feels. It's very interesting that I think that for a long time that was very normalized and that it was normal for you to like be, oh, well, you're really health conscious. So of course you don't want to eat with us. And so you can just come sit at the table with us while we go out for dinner. Or, um, you know, I grew up in a family of celiac disease. And so we've, you know, been gluten-free for well over two decades. And so that started in an era where there was no gluten-free options. And so you really had to be very aware. There was no education on labels around what was gluten, what wasn't gluten. And so I've really grown up in a, an environment teaching and educating and learning a lot about what's in the food because what you see is in the food isn't always what's really in the food. But there also becomes a point of like that obsessiveness, like you mentioned, like the counting or the metrics of it. And you know, I've never been a calorie counter in my life because I've always just thought that's been silly. But it's very interesting that we, where is the difference between what's healthy and good for you versus what's obsessive? And then that kind of leads to what we're experiencing a lot today, or we're seeing a lot today, with which is orthorexia. Mm-hmm. And 
I like if I had have known that orthorexia was a thing back after I finished having leaky gut and I was very restrictive with my eating, I would have been like, yeah, I've definitely got orthorexia. You know, it's not about how I look. It was all about how I feel after I eat my food. That was the thing for me. And um, how does that affect our cycle though? I think let's talk about, there's a lot of obsessiveness out there. There's a lot of pressure as well. Um, I think pressure around movement, like, okay, you've got to move your body every day. You've got to have this weekly routine for Pilates or this weekly routine for the gym or yoga or CrossFit or whatever it is. But let's talk about how restrictiveness and obsessiveness actually affects our menstrual cycle. Yeah. Two really big ways. One, pretty obvious, right? So energy availability. So that being the amount of energy your body has available for non-essential body functions. If your body does not have enough energy to function optimally, it's going to shut down unnecessary body, body systems like your menstrual cycle. It also shuts down proper digestion. It can also shut down bone turnover, your thyroid health, like lots of things can really suffer from under fueling. But when we think about the menstrual cycle as a fifth vital sign that gets shut down and people should be concerned. Like you should be concerned that you aren't getting your period, just like you should be concerned that your blood pressure is high, right? Like this should be something in routine physicals that providers are asking about and providers are concerned about when someone isn't getting their period. And there are other reasons why someone might not be getting their period that are related, that are not related to how they're feeling their bodies. But because we're on this topic, um, the energy available, right? So if somebody is very restrictive and we'll, you know, we'll take calories out of the equation because I don't see that as often as like clean eating and like just cutting out so many food groups. Like I hear about people, I think one of the big like fear foods for a lot of people right now is like seed oils. And it's like in America, like seed oils are in everything. So if you're trying to like cut that out. You're cutting out so many food groups. And this is what I see with a lot of people with the clean eating trend is like their intentions are great. Like they want to eat healthy. They want to fuel their bodies well, but when they go extreme and there's no flexibility and you ask like, where's the line between healthy versus obsessive or orthorexia, I think it comes down to the intention behind why someone's doing it and how rigid they are. Can you bend it all? Can you still go out for pizza with your friends or does that freak you out? And how is it really impacting like your life? So of course, not enough food impacts our ability to ovulate regularly and get a cycle. And then to add kind of an additional layer of complexity, your relationship with food. So, you know, maybe you're eating, maybe you're not under eating drastically, but maybe you have so much stress around food that your body senses, Hey, this isn't the best time to ovulate and make a baby. And maybe in that stress, you're also coping with over-exercise or you're coping with under eating and kind of just that combination can lead to, um, issues with your cycle and getting your cycle regularly. Mm, all amazing points. And like when you were mentioning about the seed oils, it's interesting because people who listen to this show know, and I mentioned this sometimes that, you know, I worked as a food science formulator for seven years, you know, God, like what, 15 years ago, 16 years ago or something. So I've been in the health industry for a long time and I have seen so many trends, 
you know, going from like it's the it's the juicing trend and now it's the fasting trend and now it's paleo and now it's gluten-free and now it's oh like a really big one that's out there that I know some people personally do is the um the medical medium style way of eating. And then like the keto is a huge one that like is not as big now in Australia anyway, but all of these things were mostly created by men for males' bodies. I think like it's a really important point to, to bring up is that when we talk about not eating enough food or restricting food, most of these things have been tested on males and male athletes or male research um, research papers who you know use males as, as their test categories because they're so much easier to test because they're not mm-hmm. cyclical like women are. And there's just so much food restriction out there. And therefore we end up starving ourselves because we think less is more when it's actually not. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's just a lot of messaging about how women like should be, I mean, biologically, a typical woman would be a smaller size than a typical man, but not always. And just because someone's smaller doesn't necessarily mean that they need less food. When we talk about women who are active and women who are, you know, engaging in levels of exercise that can lead to period loss, they kind of should be eating like men, like they should be fueling for the amount of exercise that they do. And so I think that a lot of the messaging that we've traditionally heard and, and probably still, I mean, I still hear it um, around how women should eat, I think can be very pro- problematic for helping us to know how to properly fuel our bodies, especially for women who are active. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a big topic. We could definitely spend a lot of time talking about that. But let's chat about what foods are most recommended. So something that I'm always really clear on around food restriction, especially with myself, is that if it comes from the earth, it's generally good for you. And you've got to have the sometimes foods and then you've got to have the everyday foods. And the sometimes foods are more like going to a wedding or celebrating 4th of July or Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter or one, you know, or Halloween or whatever you want to call it. But um, we tend to think that we can eat those ways all the time. And there is a big percentage of the population, particularly in both of our countries, that do think they can eat that way all the time. And like having having a soda every day is not too bad, is it? But what are the best ways and what foods would you recommend to eat for a regular and a healthy menstrual cycle? Well, I think one of the most restrictive food groups is carbohydrates. And Mm. I I sense that kind of globally in working with women around the world. And so I think that there's just so much messaging around carbs are being bad. And, you know, you see this with the keto trend, like that carbs are bad so much that people are cutting out fruit and they're cutting out potatoes and they're cutting out whole grains that they can tolerate them and they're not celiac. Right. And so I think that because that's one of the ones that I see as most restricted, that's the one that I always like to like hammer in, especially to active women, because carbohydrates are so essential for our bodies and our bodies do thrive off of carbs. Our bodies do need carbs to function properly, to ovulate, to be able to run marathons, to be able to perform at our best, you know, our, our brains need carbohydrates. And so, you know, thinking about good sources of carbs and, you know, for somebody who has struggled with fueling their bodies with enough food, I always encourage variety. So yes, we want to be eating things like sweet potatoes, quinoa, nuts and seeds, whole grain bread, sourdough breads. Like those things are all really and wonderful, but like 
mention the soda. I wouldn't necessarily say that people <laughs> should be drinking soda regularly, but thinking about expanding your diet, right? And like recognizing that like a croissant at a cafe, like should be something that you can allow yourself to enjoy when you want. Like you shouldn't feel like I can't have that because it's, you know, it's not Saturday or whatever. So, you know, just kind of recognizing that variety is really key. And the more variety you have in your diet, probably the easier time you're going to have with being able to fuel your body appropriately. Mm, That's a really good point. I love that you mentioned about carbohydrates. I'm always harping on about the fact that carbohydrates hydrate you. So like it, they're vitally important. Um, I also feel too, and I'd love to get your take on this, that fiber is really important. And the more people that cut out carbohydrates are actually getting less fiber and fiber is really important for us. Um, what's your outlook on that as a dietitian? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I feel like I know a couple of dietitians who endorse the keto diet and they're always like talking about like fiber supplements and like how to make sure, you know, you are, you know, hitting your fiber. And I'm like, or you could just like eat bread or like rice, like, you know, there's so many great sources, um, that come from carbohydrates. And so, yes. And I also just love like your point about like, I think we just like to really overcomplicate nutrition and in some ways it can be really complicated, but anything that comes from the earth to your point, like those should not be foods that we're restricting. <laughs> like those were clearly the things that have been grown on God's green earth for us to eat, consume and have energy. So, um, yeah, when you start to think about like people restricting food, even foods that like are grown naturally, like, I think that that's another red flag whenever you think about some adequacy in someone's diet. Yeah. And I think that another layer that we could add to this, and I know that you'll definitely second it is if we want to have a lot of variety, something that, and, you know, I've just come back from recently traveling overseas and something that I don't think enough people around the world do is eat in season with Mm. the season of where they live. Yeah. Like you can fly to Europe and you can find pineapples for sale in the supermarket and they don't grow pineapples there. And I think, um, you know, given that it's winter where I live at the moment, I love getting out there and seeing that, oh, the silver beets here and the leek and the fennel and all the different types of pumpkins. And whereas that's not available in our summer because I live in a tropical climate and it's definitely not here in summer. And I'd love to get your outlook on what you recommend around eating close to nature is my thing I'm always harping on about, but doing so in a seasonal cyclical way with the year really helps you get so much more variety. Well, and not to like get too like caveman primal, but like that, you know, like foods are seasonal for a reason. Um, and so I think, you know, in America, we really don't have this. We have everything that we could want at our disposal, like literally on our iPhone, have it delivered to your doorstep in under an hour. Like that is just the world, the modern world that we live in. But one thing that 
I feel like I kind of became aware of in college that I think is really great, depending on where you live, is supporting local farmers. So like when you go to the grocery store, um, I remember when I was living in a larger city in Texas, it was really cool at the Whole Foods to see, you know, we've got the organic corn, the conventional corn, and then we've got this corn that was literally grown out of farm, you know, 20 miles away. And it was so cool to be like, well, this was, you know, I'm supporting local farmers, like, and it's actually like financially benefiting both people. And just thinking about like, this is the thing that was grown closest to me. Like this is grown in the region where I am in the season that I am. And just like taking advantage of what, what is near to you. I think it's really important to do that, let alone, who knows, maybe you end up growing some of your own food or your own herbs, at least if you have the climate for it. Um, All really, really great points and topics. Um, I think it's really important for us to be able to open up a wide vocabulary of food too. And it also means that you're going to have so much more enjoyment and less pressure on yourself. You know, that kind of comes back to the label of orthorexia and the really attentiveness and the obsessiveness on food. I love that you mentioned about farmer's markets, hence why I'm dressed up in my woolly clothes (laughs) because I just got home from the farmer's markets this morning. It's like in my essentials. Um, It's really important to be able to look at, okay, well, where can I make small changes and what would be the best small changes you would recommend for people to start making if they feel like they have any form of restrictive eating, they feel like they're not eating enough, or they feel that intuitively that there's an opportunity for them to improve their relationship with food, what would you recommend? I think one of the coolest places to start is to eat with other people, Mm. to allow other people to cook for you and to make like food fun, like make it a dining experience. Like if you're afraid to go eat pizza, go make it a fun thing, like go out with your partner, or go out with some of your friends. And I think that if we can lower the stress around the dining environment, that can lower the stress around food, which is then going to help your body to digest that food, especially if it's something you're stressed out about, or you haven't had in a while. It's kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed out about eating this food this is going to, you know, I'm going to feel horrible. I'm going to get fat, whatever. It's like when you're that stressed about the food, like, of course your digestion is not going to be great. So if we can calm and create an environment around food and do everything that we can to make food fun again, I think that that's a really great place to start on improving your relationship with food and adding more variety into your diet. Mm, I love that. Um, Can I add a piece too? Um, something that I find really important after studying Ayurveda and looking at the Ayurvedic health perspective with food, it's not also what you eat most of the time. It's how you're eating. And I think if you're someone who's like freaking out about having fucking pizza with your friends, it's about being sitting, like sitting at the table, being with your friends, taking nice, long, deep breaths. And actually mastic, excuse my language, but masticating the fuck out of every mouthful of that pizza pizza and really feeling and tasting all the sensations of all the flavors and enjoying that, you'll find you'll eat slower. You won't eat as much, not that you'll be overeating or eating too little, but you'll eat to the right quantity because you'll be in tune with how full you feel. 
I think that's a really big piece of food and food health that a lot of people who are listening might forget that it's also how you eat your food, not just what you're eating. Right. Yeah. The environment, like limiting distractions, which is so hard to do, right? Like that's like one of the like, like obvious ways that someone can, you know, tune into healthy eating is to, you know, limit distractions during meals so that you can taste all the flavors. You can appreciate the food. You can tune into your body's internal appetite regulating, you know, cues and hormones. Um, but it can be so hard to do, especially again, in our modern world, when we're always on our phones or we're watching, we're on our laptops, like working through lunch, which I'm so guilty of, but yes, absolutely. The environment and kind of like our mindset going into meals can impact so many things about food, our digestion, the way that our body uses the food. So yes, it's, it's an under talked about thing for sure. Mm, great. Thanks for adding to that. Um, Throwing back to what we started with, or we mentioned very, very early on about lower level menstrual disturbances, let's can we spend a bit of time talking about what are lower level menstrual disturbances? Because I find some people a little bit too disconnected that they're not even really noticing that these very early signs are popping up that may be something that could be contributing to their menstrual cycle. And they could avoid potentially having amenorrhea or leading down to a challenge in their menstrual cycle. So we talked about lower level menstrual disturbances and also the health habits that can cause these disturbances. So let's, let's address that now. Yeah. I think this is so important because if somebody can catch this in their cycle before their cycle goes missing, like that's amazing. That's what we want to do. Um, and so this is probably something you're not going to be aware of unless you're tracking your cycle. So when we talk about low level menstrual disturbances, we talk about a luteal phase that's shorter than 10 days, 10 days being the amount, um, that we need for our bodies to make enough progesterone to support pregnancy. This hasn't been thoroughly studied, but there's more and more research coming out about how progesterone is really important for bone health too. So I suspect that someone continually having short luteal phases, like a luteal phase of five days, six days, seven days, whatever, I suspect that that could also be causing some harm on our bodies in some ways. Um, so I, and again, like if if you listeners have been taught about your cycle, the way I was taught, it's like your period shows up every month. Like you're getting your period, you're good. But, and, and that is good. You should celebrate that you're getting your period every month. But when we start tracking things and we start learning about when we're ovulating, when we start learning about the length of our luteal phase, we can really start to assess the health of our cycle. And so short luteal phase would kind of be the first sign that our body's not happy. And that could be due to probably stress could be due to like stress about maybe you just moved countries. Maybe you just switched jobs. Maybe you got out of a relationship. Like, yes, that's stress, but also too, it could be a sign of overtraining, like too much stress from exercise. You're pushing yourself too hard in the gym. You're not taking any of those rest days. You're not listening to your body. You're obsessed with being at the top of the leaderboard on, on the Peloton or, or whatever. Right. So that's definitely one thing that can contribute to it as the body is under more stress. And as the body might also be under some stress from caloric restriction, whether intentional or not, um, we can start to see that cycles become inovulatory. So 
our bodies are smart, right? Like if they're stressed and they're sensing low energy availability, they're going to protect us and a potential life by saying, Hey, this isn't the time. Like I barely have enough fuel to keep you alive and you kicking. We're not going to make another little you like that's not going to happen right now. And so you can be getting your period regularly, but not actually ovulating on all of your cycles or any of your cycles. So that's kind of the next thing to look for. And then as the body gets even more stressed and maybe even more deprived of calories, carbohydrates, and nutrients, that's when we start to see irregular cycles. So maybe instead of your cycle coming every 27 days, it's coming every 67 days. And that eventually can turn into full-blown amenorrhea. So it's kind of like a spectrum. And I think that if we're tracking mm-hmm. our cycles closely, we can kind of look at these signs and be like, well, what's going on with me? Am I working too hard? Am I not getting enough sleep? have I been a little too restrictive with my diet? You know, we can kind of use our cycle as a self-assessment for our overall well-being. Mm, I love that. And would you also add to that, that, and like, like this is what I'm asking, because I'd love to get your outlook on this, what their menstrual experience is. So when they're menstruating, the color of their blood, the texture of their blood, the length, the sensation when they're menstruating, would you add that in as another potential sign that they can actually see some changes in that could link to maybe something else is going on? Yeah, I definitely would. Because like, if you're having, and I'll kind of talk about both ends of the spectrum, if you're having heavy, painful periods, like that's not normal, right? Like something's going on and that should you, we should start assessing our lifestyle, our stress, what we're eating, how much we're moving, all the things. Right. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, if you've been having periods your entire life that are four to five days long, now your periods are like one to three days long, then that's a sign that you're not really building up a healthy lining. And that's actually something we see a lot with under eating and over exercising. Mm, and do you also see, cause I know I see this, but I see people who have shorter menstrual bleeds around the one to two days or one day bleeding with the second day of spotting that's often linked with a shorter luteal phase as well. Yes. Yeah. Cause you think about like the way the cycle works and, um, progesterone being the thing that kind of fluffs up the uterine lining in the luteal phase. Well, if your luteal phase is half the amount of time that it's supposed to be, then yeah, the uterine lining isn't really getting where it needs to be. Um, Mm. yeah, yeah, definitely linked. Great things for everyone who's listening. And if you don't track your cycle yet, this is your, this is your today. This is your, this is your message. (laughs) And, um, I, I'm a big advocate for tracking with a written tracker because it actually helps you bring a little bit more into the more awareness into what you're actually feeling, your sensations, as opposed to the tap, tap, swipe kind of forget on your phone. Like so much of your phone attitude and relationship with your phone is about like tap, tap, swipe. Fuck, I just spent 30 minutes scrolling. I don't know where that came from. Um, I think, yeah, a written tracker is a great thing to do. So these are really great things, Lindsay, that we can add to everything. Now, you mentioned earlier about non-ovulatory cycles. And I know that some people listening are going to be like, but how is that possible? Like I am 33. How am I having an anovulatory cycle and then menstruating? Because isn't it true that when I menstruate, I menstruate because I ovulated. So do you mind just giving us a quick little run through on how is it possible for someone to have a cycle and menstruate, but actually have an anovulatory cycle? 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I know you have talked about this probably dozens of times on the podcast. So you guys, this is probably just review of information, but like when at the beginning of your cycle, your body is gearing up to grow and mature a follicle. And so as that follicle is growing and working towards being the potential one that's going to ovulate, you know, your body is also checking in and sensing, do I have enough of this? Do I have enough of that? What do the hormones look like? And if hormones are out of whack or the body is too stressed, you can grow a follicle and the follicle can make it kind of to like the mature stage, but because the body doesn't have enough energy or the body is too stressed, that follicle will die back. Well, that happens, but you've still built up this lining. And so eventually the drop in hormones that happens, you'll still shed the lining, but you never actually ovulated an egg. And some people will say that if you're getting your period every month, it's highly unlikely that you're ovulating. I have not found that to be the case in the women that I work with. Granted, I'm working with a subset of women who are struggling with infertility, people who are struggling with disordered eating. And so I probably see it more often and maybe it happens in the wild, if you will. <laughs> but like, just check, just make sure you're ovulating, right? Like, it's not that hard to be able to do um, through basal body temperature tracking, or in these days, there's even ways to test progesterone in your luteal phase through a dried urine test at home. Like just check, just check on a couple of cycles, make sure that that's happening because ovulation is also the main event of the menstrual cycle. And if you're not ovulating, you probably have some mood imbalances that could really benefit from getting your body ovulating regularly again. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that because I know that a lot of people are like, but how? And then they don't realize that even when you reach menarche and you get your period for the very first time ever, even that could be an anovulatory cycle. Like there's so much going on and it's a really important thing with fertility. And I'm glad that you mentioned that in your practice because as we age and you would know the fertility stats that more and more women are choosing to, you know, birth and conceive much later in life. And we call it much later, but it's much earlier than midlife for, for like today's day and age. Right. Um, but, you know, we're talking about thirties into early forties. And when we consider that understanding whether you actually have a healthy ovulation well before you plan on your preconception is so important and so easy to do. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you. And ovulatory um, dysfunction is like the number one cause of infertility. So if you're concerned about your future fertility, you're listening to this podcast and you're 28, you're not ready to start your family, even in the next 10 years, you know, like get your cycle healthy enough so that you're not 38 being like, Oh, I haven't been ovulating, you know, like this is a great time to just like do a self-assessment and make sure your cycle is healthy. Yeah. And the best way to do that, I would say, and I'd love to hear your outlook, but like work with a natural fertility or natural contraceptive educator who teaches fertility awareness-based methods or, you know, the abilities to track successfully to your body ovulation because everyone's body's different. There's no one size fits all caftan for this. Um, but what would your recommendations be if someone was listening to you going, yes, actually, Lindsay, I do want to do that. Yeah, man, I've never done this, but I will second working with someone like a, uh, like a cycle coach or somebody who has been trained in fan fertility awareness method, because there's a big learning curve. If you've never tracked your cycle, 
I would not, if you've never tracked your cycle and your cycles aren't regular, I would not recommend using fertility awareness by yourself as a form mm-hmm. of birth control because things change. Um, but if you work with somebody who is, you know, you're, you talked about like the manual tracking versus using your phone. Like if you work with somebody like this is their job and they are helping you learn what's right for your body, it can be probably a lot more effective than you just downloading an app and kind of tracking it on your own. But you know, let's say you want a place to start. I think that downloading an app can be a helpful place to start. And the more that you track, the more you're going to get to know your body, um, the more you're going to be tracking your cervical mucus and kind of the patterns that are, you know, normal for your body. Eventually it'll kind of feel like clockwork. So it's, Mm. you know, start somewhere, but I, yeah, man, I suck at like working with somebody who kind of like knows this and this is their job and let, let them teach you. Cause you'll probably be more, you'll become more proficient at cycle tracking a lot faster than if you just wing it. Totally. And once you learn the skill, it will serve you forever. Like through into like all of your pregnancies or postnatal, um, like postpartum times, right through to premenopause, to perimenopause, to menopause. If you have girls, you know, like how cool is that? Like really cool. Like how like beautiful and full circle is that when we talk about how we both like were on birth control, didn't know a lot about our cycles. Like, like, don't we eventually like want our kids to not have to deal with what we've dealt with? So yes, I love that. Very empowering. I, I love it too. So thanks for sharing. Um, all right. I've got two final questions um, to kick it off. I'd love to ask you if someone has challenges or any of these lower level menstrual disturbances or is experiencing a missing period, amenorrhea or irregular cycles, what are the best food recommendations for, you could call it period recovery or, you know, supporting your cycle again? Like what are your top food recommendations? My top food recommendations you know, and maybe, and I guess this isn't a food in and of itself, but like, you got to make sure you're eating enough. And the way to do that, the easiest way to do that is to make sure you are eating frequently. So you could be eating all the right things. You could just maybe not be eating enough of those right things. And so let's make sure that you are waking up in the morning and having a good breakfast of carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So I'm big on like making sure we're covering all our bases on major macronutrients. So the foods itself don't have to be incredibly specific. Um, you know, to like go with stuff you like, like if you don't like, you know, oatmeal, don't eat oatmeal. <laughs> if you don't like bagels, don't eat bagels, but make sure you have a good source of carbohydrate at all of your meals. Make sure you're eating frequently and make sure there's enough overall energy coming in. And the easiest way to do that is to make sure that you're eating all throughout the day. Like don't like have your biggest meal at the end of the day and like starve yourself all day. Um, on the flip side, don't feel like, Oh, I had a big lunch. Now I don't necessarily need to eat anything in the evening. Right. Like just think about the way that our bodies need Think about how much energy you need to wake up in the morning, do your job, go get that workout in, go, you know, do all the things around the house. Like you need a lot of energy and you should be giving your body bits of energy all day long, not having this gigantic meal at the end of the day um, and not trying to like run off of no food. So I think that nutrient timing and the amount of food coming in are probably most important. And then if I could hit on like some of my favorite foods, um, that people could just, you know, make sure that they're adding in. Um, I would say I love quinoa. I love, um, chickpea pasta. I love sweet potatoes. So I'd say like, those are some superfood carb sources, um, fats, 
seeds. And I'm sure you've talked about this on this podcast before, but like there are really great, like hormone benefits from things like flax seed, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds. So like seeds are amazing, great source of fat, great source of energy, um, seeds, avocados, oils, and then like to cover proteins. I like variety. Um, I'm really big on variety. So like, like, yes, fish, yes, tofu, like, yes, beef even, right? Like, I think that the more that we have variety in our diet, the more that we don't have to stress about like all of the things, you know, people are so quick to be like, oh, red meat is bad. Well, yes, if that's the only source of protein that you're eating every single day and it's super processed, but I think that there are really great benefits from having variety of protein sources, varieties of fats and varieties of carbohydrates. Variety is key. I love it. Eat the rainbow. Eat the rainbow. (laughs) Um, Lindsay, this has been amazing. Um, I'm so grateful that you've been here and taken some time to to be with us to share all this beautiful information. How can everybody find you? How can people learn a little bit more about food freedom and fertility and all the things that you do? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, So give me a follow at food.freedom.fertility. I also have a podcast. It's the Period Recovery and Fertility Podcast. So we talk about all things amenorrhea, getting your period back and planning to conceive, whether that's your goal right now or 10 years in the future. Um, I also have a blog on my website. My website is foodfreedomandfertility.com. I'm on TikTok. (laughs) Might be one of the older people on TikTok, but yeah. That's, that's where I am, but I'm probably most I'm, I'm on, I probably spend the most time on Instagram. So if somebody wants to reach out and say hello, I'd love to hear from you on Instagram, but if somebody just wants to, you know, know a little bit more, I'd say, um, Instagram, of course, website and podcast. Fantastic. Well, we'll pop all those links in there. And if you've liked listening to Lindsay today, you know, to go check out her podcast. Now, what is your podcast called? Period recovery and fertility podcast. Fantastic. Well, we will pop all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Now, Lindsay, I do have a final question to ask you that we ask all of our guests and it's kind of like switching gears compared to what we have been talking about, Okay. but I want you to think back to your first period, like that first Menarch experience. What are three things you wish you had have known then about your period or your cycle that you now know today? I wish that I knew that it was something that I didn't have to be ashamed of because I felt like it was like secretive. And I wish I knew that like, it's actually really cool. And it's something that people should be excited about. Um, I wish I knew, I don't know if anyone knew this back then though, cause I'm thinking about when I was like 13 years old, but, um, I wish I knew about like other menstrual products, right? Like I felt like I wore pads for like way too long. And now we're learning so much about the chemicals and pads. And I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> um, I wish I knew that I knew, I wish I had that information. Um, And then I wish I knew like that the whole reason we get periods is because we are ovulating or we should be ovulating. Right. Like I felt like growing up, like it was all about the bleed when in reality, like the bleed is kind of like just the beginning of the cycle. And I definitely did not understand that as a teenager. Mm, They're really great points. Um, Some all stuff that I know I didn't learn when I started menstruating at 15, but to know what we know now back then, right? Like if only, and, um, and also to be like, if you were to tell me at like 13, 14, like, yeah, like period, like periods is going to be like a huge part of your life and a huge part of your career. I would have been like, no, (laughs) I thought that like 12 years ago, I was like, no, it's not no way, no way am I talking about periods of menstruation and ovulation and 
discharge and arousal fluid and cervical mucus every day of my life. There is no way, um, but I love it. I wouldn't change it for anything. And I'm sure you would too. Same. Yeah. Love talking about those things. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Lindsay. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so grateful that you've been able to share your time with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into every episode of the Well Woman podcast. For everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can find this in the show notes over at wellsome.com forward slash podcast. If this episode excited you, please hit follow on Spotify, which means all of my episodes will pop up in your feed weekly so you never miss a weekly drop. I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts too. Love this episode? Come and follow me over on Instagram at wellsome underscore Gemily. Say hi and share what you've taken away from this episode with me. Now, is there a bestie, sister, or a friend who you know who might be fed up, frustrated, and confused with their cycles? Are they ready to join you in awakening their cyclical essence too? Well, take a screenshot of this podcast episode, share it on your socials, email it, text it, or any way you need to get it to them. So together, we can all live in flow, harmony, and balance with our cycles. Now, until next time, beautiful, get connected, listen to your body, and remember, body confidence all begins with living in tune with your menstrual cycle.